0: everybody and welcome to another BP movie journal the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these i'm david i'm tyler and as seems to have become our schedule it's been two weeks it'll be two weeks i think until our our, our next one it's yeah not on purpose we we want to do movie journals every week but things are very busy v- yeah, it's a busy time and also i'm just still i'm getting back on track and i'm still just not watching as many movies um partially because i'm on vacation right now which is weird this is i'm like You're on vacation right now i'm on vacation right now oh wow um Uh, this is the first, I took two weeks off from work and it's the first time that I've done, like taken used any vacation time since before the pandemic. Do you consider yourself a workaholic David? Um, no.
1: Okay. I don't think so. All right. Do you think of me as a workaholic? No, I don't. Um, but it's just something I don't think of myself as a workaholic, but then I look at patterns and thought processes from the last several years. and I'm like, Oh, Huh. huh. Well, I think I don't, in Natalie's words,
0: or Natalie's way of thinking, I do not exercise good work-life balance. Sure. Like, I say that I've been on vacation, like, taking two weeks. I've been checking my email every day mm. and replying to work like replying to work emails when I feel like I need to, because there are people covering for me. So if there's a question, if I see a, a, an email come through that I could answer right away, but I'm like, the people covering for me, they'll know that. I'll step back. Yeah. But if it's like, oh, this is going to cause the people who are covering for me more work to research. Whereas I could answer this off the top of my head. I will send an email and I feel more at ease about that. I don't know, but I, so I don't, but I don't think that's the same as being a workaholic because I don't define. Right. My, I don't define my life by yeah. My, it's a
1: boundary. My it's a boundaries issue.
0: But it, in some. But ways. it also like it works for me. I don't know. This sounds like me like saying I'm a gambling addict who has a system <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> but it, like it it works for me. I have found that if I try to go a whole weekend just stepping away from my work email it causes me more anxiety than if I just check in every once in a while because I will catastrophize I will if I'm if I don't check my email for 12 hours I will think something terrible has happened I've some fuck up I made has come to light and everyone is like mad at me and i like so like it's easier on my brain if I check my email regularly if I get
1: I don't necessarily get work email often but and if I'm being honest, if a student emails me, it's not super urgent. Um, but if, but if my boss emails me, um, I feel like I don't necessarily assume that I've done something wrong, but I also don't not assume it. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I feel like I need to know what the issue is, if there's an issue and there's like, Oh, they're just updating about a screening or something like that. But like, right. It's like, I need to know if there's an issue and if, and even if it's not urgent, it's like, well, if I respond now, I've done what I, I've done my part mm-hmm. and it's done, it's over as opposed to like, oh, I'm not going to get to it for two hours. If that's two hours of worry. Yeah. Then that's two hours of a thing. Even if, even if I know that it, it, it's something that requires a response, but it's not a problem, then it's, well, it's just a thing to do. Mm hmm and there's a good chance I'll forget in 2 hours. As you know, I'm not great at responding to if I don't respond immediately, there's a there's I'd say a, an 85% chance <laughs> I'm never responding. Um, I also in my work
0: work, I have implemented a task that I use when I'm emailing you <laughs> with cer- with a certain vendor that we work with. Oh, okay. I have come to the realization I cannot ask two different questions or Uh, ask for two different things to be done in the same email that's they (laughs) they have to be separate emails and i got that from you it's it's one thing per email (laughs) it's (laughs) either yeah that's true (laughs) Um, anyway so uh yeah so i haven't taken a vacation since i went to uh vegas in uh february of 2020 uh and i was supposed to last september september of 2020 natalie and i were supposed to go to buenos aires that's right we obviously had to cancel that because of COVID, but the airline made us reschedule like within a year. So we had it scheduled for this September. Still can't go to Argentina because yeah. of uh, of COVID, un- unfortunately. So, but we set it to like. We're, were you able to res- reschedule, or did this that just time, go I, I think away? This came up on the podcast before. This time they finally let us just get a refund. Okay, which was uh, yeah, because I, I think we talked about this before on the podcast. But anyway. Um, but we decided not to like cancel our vacation days to just take a vacation because other things are open, like and available to vaccinated people in certain parts of the country. So uh, we decided to, instead of doing a two week trip to Buenos Aires, we're doing three mini trips. <laughs> so we went to sure. Seattle for a few days, came back, went to Solvang, wine country for our anniversary, uh, just got back from that yesterday. We're home for a couple days and then we're going to Joshua Tree to celebrate yeah. my birthday. All right uh, out, out in Joshua Tree so yeah places a big three four <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I'm trying to help you here yeah no um no I'm about to be 39 and uh as my mother-in-law says every time I tell her I'm about to be 39 she says and holding right <laughs> I love my mother-in-law <laughs> she's a delight um so, uh, so yeah, that's part of the reason that I, it's been two weeks since we've done these, done one of these. I've only watched three movies. So that's part of the, like, yeah, like half of the time I've been, uh, out of town. I've also, I've been on a plane twice since like being vaccinated. Mm. Uh, I mean, I guess four times cause you yeah. know, if, right. uh, six times if you count layovers. Anyway, that's not the point. Uh, um, I've taken two plane trips, I guess. Mm. Again, more than that. I don't know how do you say that two two round trips yeah i guess yeah two round trip plane trips uh and i've realized that like my life because natalie and i are so like during the pandemic like so generally very observant and cautious like uh, even though we've all been wearing masks or whatever forever i i I realized like oh i never had a mask on for more than like 45 minutes at a stretch like Mm -hmm. either you know, early COVID when we were doing like if I was walking the dog around the neighborhood, I'd, I'd, I'd wear a mask. Um, now it's like, you know, if I'm running into the grocery store or whatever, I didn't wear a mask for like that was it didn't even occur to me. But it was like, oh, yeah, that's the longest. But now, like we we're occasionally going to movies and then like a plane, like especially if you have a layover, like you're wearing a mask for like six, seven, eight hours at yeah. a time. Um, I am lucky to be a bearded gentleman because my mask knee is so fucking bad. <laughs> I have so many oh, like little man. like I, I don't know if you have if, if you've had that that, no, that mask haven't. knee problem. No, but uh, it's been a a real problem for me. No. That's the downside of vacation during COVID. The biggest issue for me is just glasses fogging up. It's infuriating. You know, I uh, <laughs> I feel it's so weird. We're talking about masks a year and a half after, but we're still talking <laughs> yeah. about. But I found after everything, I know, I know that they're like bad for the environment, but the like disposable medical masks. They're... They work better than any other cloth mask. They do. Like uh, that's the ones.
1: I, uh, that's what I
0: wear these days. It, yeah, because they uh, they they're the best at preventing the the, the, the fogging. I've I, I've found. I don't know. I wish I could find a good reusable mask that has all of the same dimensions and the little like bar that you squeeze over your nose. Like, I, that, that's what I want. I switched to. Oh, what I really want is then, uh, to well, not have sure. to wear masks anymore
1: i switched to the disposable ones once i once school started and it was in session because i had to lecture mm. and i found with like you know cloth masks or or whatever you whatever you call it like they're comfortable in other ways but to talk like your jaw's constantly moving and it's just and it wiggles around a little bit and you have to readjust it whereas i do feel like those those uh like Surgical, the like the disposable surgical mask. I don't think they're surgical masks, but whatever they, yeah. whatever you call them. Um, they seem to also be a bit more flexible, so like it can cling to my jaw while I'm talking for an hour, right? And uh, not, not and pull it off your exactly. nose, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. All right, well, uh, we've talked about masks in talked about a lot of September stuff in 2021.
1: Yeah. What, did, what did you watch over the past two weeks? So, uh, one film, I a there's there's a review at dot com. it is. And I'm not sure if I'm going to say this uh, name right. John Polano's Small Engine Repair. Okay. Which I liked, occasionally really liked, didn't love. There are are sequences and moments. It's based on a play, and that really comes through in certain moments. That's not an automatic strike against it, but it can be and every once in a while it just it feels like they're playing to the back row and it feels like everything is just so big that it's just like "Uh and and it also feels from a composition standpoint it feels like everyone's cheating out it's like you know you can just move the camera if you want right you can have them facing each other it's fine Um, but but yeah it's it deserves to be mentioned in the same breath as other movies some of which are based on plays and, and some are not but movies like Glengarry Glen Ross, or frankly, probably more American Buffalo, if you want to stick with Mamet, hmm. 25th Hour, movies very much about okay. masculinity and friendship and that sort of thing. Uh, and there's a, and it's, you know, these three, like, working class guys in the Northeast and just trying to sort of, th- their type of masculinity is is probably what, what, what could be considered toxic the way that they, okay. the way they are friends. Just like constant like busting balls and just you watch it and you're like H- why are you guys hanging out? You guys don't seem to like each other but I also know that you do if only you were able <laughs> to express this. But it what's f- the, I think what the most fascinating thing to me and this is something I didn't put in my review because it's only occurred to me since then. They, all three of these guys despite being a little older they're kind of in a state of transition where they're starting to absorb slightly newer ideas about masculinity. And so, and that makes it so much, it, it, it makes it so much more interesting than just a pure, like just testosterone type of thing, you know? Um, and so like, there's a moment where, um, John John Bernthal is, is in it, and he's an actor that I don't often like because um, hmm. I think he's a little bit too big. But in the right character, he can work really well. But there is a scene with him and Shea Wiggum, who, of course, is the MVP of the whole thing, um, as is not surprising. Uh, Both Wolf of Wall Street vets. That's true. I forgot about that.
0: Shea Wiggum's, like, kind of barely in it. He's, like, the I, yacht captain, yeah, right? Yeah, it's, yeah. It's like two it's, scenes.
1: He just pops up. Yeah. And you know what? You know what? That's... It's the best. It's the best scene in the film, uh, uh, Wolf of Wall Street. <laughs> um, but yeah, so like they're these two guys, and then John Polano, the director, he he plays the basically the lead. So these, there's these three friends, and like they go out to a bar, and eventually, and and like Shea Wiggum is trying to be John Bernthal's like wingman, like with these girls, but instead, like they and they're telling like funny stories about each other, and you know, it's like it's only a matter of time before somebody tells the wrong kind of funny story. And then the others gonna kind of start getting angry. And oh, there it goes. Uh and John Bernthal slaps mm. Shea Wiggum. And it's just like it's really jarring. And immediately after he like pulls him aside. He goes, Hey man, you know, I'm really sorry about that. He goes, and Shea Wiggum like looks like he's about to cry and goes, That was totally wrong of me. Like, and you feel like 10 years ago that wouldn't have happened. Right. <laughs> but other guys in the bar see that happening so of course they just start calling them gay and all that sort of thing and then the fight breaks out uh, with strangers and so it's just that to me is is maybe the most interesting thing is seeing this masculinity in transition uh, the film goes some weird places and I don't think it always does so in a smooth way um, I don't know when when John Polano uh, Polano uh, wrote this play i don't know if it was his first play it often feels like that but there are enough moments in the film to recommend uh you just need to be ready that like this is you're dealing with characters that you're probably not going to like very much but the performances are still there and and some of the concepts are really effective
0: um you were saying about the just waiting for the wrong story to be told yeah reminds me okay first off we should do an episode on great scenes in bad movies. Sure, I, I feel it,
1: like we. <clears throat> I feel like we may have done that already. We may. I, we've yeah. done nearly like 750,
0: yeah. 760 episodes. It's been yeah, um, but there's a. Did you ever see Guess Who? The remake of Guess Who's Coming to Dinner no, with Ashton Kutcher and Zoe Saldana and Bernie Mac. Um, but there's a scene where Ashton Kutcher because it's like the race reversed guess mm-hmm. there's a scene where Ashton Kutcher is at like dinner with Zoe Sedan's like extended family yeah. and they're like going, they're, like, come on you must have heard some black jokes from your friends in like in your time and so they're like tell us some of the jokes you've heard and so like it's the most uncomfortable because he tells a few jokes and like the characters are like, ah, that's a good one, or whatever. But you're just waiting the entire scene for like he's gonna go too far, yeah. he's gonna tell the yeah. wrong joke. It's such a great scene in an otherwise completely
1: forgettable. And of course, Bernie Mac, uh, you know, right. yeah. uh, dearly missed. But uh, yeah. he was always so good at like having that kind of humorous intensity uh, yeah. at yeah. times. But uh, okay, so what did you watch?
0: Uh, so I watched the. Um, I have come to the films of. Alejandro Jodorowsky uh, in the most backwards out of order way. Okay. The first one I ever saw was Santa Sangre. I
1: don't think I've seen any of his films, okay.
0: actually. So I saw Santa Sangre years ago, and then I saw during the pandemic, I watched this new, newish documentary, Psycho Magic, which is terrible, okay. by the way. Um, which means so the two that he's best known for are El Topo and Holy Mountain. Still haven't seen those. Now I went all the way back to the beginning. And so his first film, 1968's Fando Elise or Fando and Elise, which uh, is is kind of like a lot of his films. Well, I think okay. From what I understand from reading about Fando Elise is that it got a lot of comparisons, rightfully so, to Fellini at uh, at the time because he's very much into these like presenting these. These sort of big, almost kind of like dreamlike, uh, circus-like tableau, you know. Um, and I think there were, so I think there were a lot of like, oh, this is lesser Fellini. So I feel by then, I don't. I'll have to watch El Topo and Holy Mountain to see how much of this is a gradual progression or how much it feels to me like an immediate one. Because the next film chronologically that I've seen is Santa Sangre, which is still Fellini-esque, but very much has his, like, Hodorowsky be like, no, I'm gonna be like the darkly gothic, like, bloody horror-adjacent Fellini. Okay. And Fando Elise isn't that yet. It's it's about a, a, a young uh, couple. Um, the woman is uh, paraplegic and needs to be, like, uh, carted around. She's, like, in a wheelbarrow or whatever, and they're... It's based on, like, a sort of Um, a a play from the time that's like an experimental, like, non-narrative play. So it's basically about two young people who are trying to find this mystical land where they'll find enlightenment or whatever, and Mm -hmm. and they're just traversing the mountains and they keep coming across different uh, weird groupings of of people. Like, there's a group of old ladies (laughs) playing bridge or cards or something like that Mm -hmm. on the edge of a cliff and next to them is, like, a husky guy in his underwear to whom the ladies take turns very uh sensually feeding hard boiled eggs that's one of them (laughs) (laughs) and then like there's another one where it's like the bomb it looks like a, a bomb went off or something there's all this rubble but there's like people having a cocktail party like they're in full cocktail dress and someone's playing a piano like while it's on fire and it's just like they keep coming across these different it it's like it's a fun like way to spend 95 minutes, you know, it's, it's plenty, there's plenty of fun stuff to look at. I think as like a hippie movie, um, you know, I think we've, uh, you were talking about how, uh, circumstances and attitudes and dialogues and positions have changed Mm. with regards to certain things. I think like one thing that's come to the fore, in more recent years is the idea that like, oh yeah, the hippie free love thing was still like really like uh, masculine center, really, sure. really like uh, patriarchal. And I think this is not a movie that comments on it. I think it's a movie that like kind of puts it into stark uh, uh, re- relief. Like yeah. the, the way that Fando like treats lease is like, it's awful at, mm. at, at times. Um, and I don't know, how I, I wonder how it was, how people saw that treatment at the time. If it was just like, Oh, they're two free spirits. So like, yeah. this guy's a jerk. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, I look forward to, I will, I will watch El Topo and Holy mountain to see like the two movies that he's actually best known for, which I inadvertently saved for last. I didn't mean to, but I saved them for last. I will watch them and I'll report back on, on how, quickly he he changed because I really Give like Santa Sangre. a birthday present David, yeah, and yeah. watch them both in one day there we go um but I, I really like San, Santa Sangre um but I know that's not uh, that's second tier I think to Hodorowsky fans after right after El Topo and Holy Mountain all
1: right uh pivoting very much away from uh that type of film I saw Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings oh. the latest Marvel film by uh, Dustin Daniel I don't know if it's Cretan or Cretan I would say Pro- probably not Cretan. Maybe it's Creton. Uh, possibly. <laughs> yeah. You know what? Let's say that's what it is. Um, it's fine. It's okay. there are moments that are that are great from a from a fighting standpoint. Like there's a the the first action sequence takes place like on a bus, and I, I think I'm a sucker for like a confined action sequence. Oh yeah, whether sure. Whether it be like the elevator in, in uh, uh, Winter Soldier or whatever. Um... So it's, and and there's some really beautiful visuals. There's a lot of there is a lot of good in the film, and I do think, from the perspective of like representation, I feel like it it really does. It feels a lot like uh, you know Black Panther or something like that, where you realize like oh the the vast majority, of the characters uh, are are Asian American or just uh, or just Asian because um, you get somebody like a, a Tony Lung in there. Um, is it lung or, or Lung? I never know. Liung it, it might be like
0: okay. two syllables. I don't know if that's right. But, yeah, but I don't know.
1: Um, but yeah, and and that's and and I I do find myself thinking like you know if I were if I were a, a young like Asian American you know a, a little kid who likes the Marvel movies and then you see this film and you're like oh hey this is very exciting. The problem, as tends to happen with, in my opinion, movies like. Captain Marvel and, and black Panther is that the lead is the least interesting character in the bunch. Um, and that's nothing against Brie Larson. It's nothing against Chadwick Boseman. I think that there's such a focus on the ensemble Mm. and the ensemble is so good that they see like, there are times where Shang-Chi will show up and, and the actor does a fine job and they write him well enough, but he shows up and I'm like, Oh Yeah. And I feel like you're not supposed <laughs> to say, "Oh yeah," in the in the movie named after the character. Yeah, and that is unfortunate. Uh, the I do think that the 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 main draw from a character standpoint is uh, Tony uh, Liung Lung, whatever, because um, it's it's a really great performance and a very subtle one. And when people talk about Marvel villains, I feel like he definitely will be in the top tier. It's a really solid. Uh, really solid performance and just a good characterization all around. Um, there's, there are some things that I, I guess at this point, it's not really a spoiler cause the movie has been out for a while, but like uh, w- how it, how it connects with other, mm-hmm. with the Marvel universe, like who shows up uh, characters you really don't expect. Cause just like, yeah, the, f- the, the first, like not the first, not the Ang Lee Hulk, but uh, the, was it Louis the Terrier? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Like, the Abomination shows up. I never this. saw that movie, so I don't. Know. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> yeah. exactly. People <laughs> don't, don't feel the need to watch that one. Uh, but the Abomination, who is is the one of the primary villains in that film, played by Tim Roth, he's in this for like two seconds, and apparently is played by Tim Roth. And just like, "Huh. All right. Well, good for them trying to incorporate, uh, you know, the sort of the misfits of the yeah. <laughs> of the of the thing." But uh, did you see Iron Man Three? No. Okay, because that's the I one. Didn't even see Iron Man Two. I think you'd like them both. I think you would have a great deal of respect for three for the exact same reason I do and for the, re- the same reason that so many people don't. Um, okay. And that's because it's Shane Black and he's doing some really interesting things, especially with the character of the Mandarin. Um, and so they incorporate that into this uh, and I think they do it really well. And uh, so it's, it's more than a cameo. It's a genuine supporting performance. Ben Kingsley shows up. Right. Uh, and there's a moment where they're driving along and they stop and uh, they're kind of in this fantasy world uh, and so like there's these very strange looking horses that that pass by and uh, Ben Kingsley goes what's he looking at me for? Which is a line from Sexy Beast, by the way, when he and <laughs> when he and Ray Winstone are in a car and a bunch of goats go by and and Don Logan says, what's he looking at me for? And I and I laughed in the theater. Yeah, it was it was a pretty full theater. And I was the only one that laughed. And I wouldn't I have felt, got it, but that's awesome. I felt both superior and inferior at the same time uh, and uh, good for them for incorporating that. Uh, I but love yeah.
0: how game Ben Kingsley is because I, <laughs> I, I think about him as himself on The Sopranos and oh, how yeah. funny. Fuck!
1: (laughs) fuck it's so funny on that show and for that reason i do well for a few reasons but i really think you would enjoy iron man 3 because the whole point is that his character like when he's playing the mandarin Mm -hmm. it's great it's like really chilling and it's a really good characterization and then when you when he plays Trevor Slattery mm-hmm. uh, it's even more delightful um, but yeah so spoilers I guess everyone sorry about that uh, for Iron Man 3 as well as Shang-Chi uh, this character shows up but it's not it's a fun reveal but it's also it's kind of common knowledge at this point point. and okay. the film is good not great I, I don't feel like I'm going to return to it but I'm interested to see how it plays into the larger universe well,
0: that's too bad I was looking forward to liking a Destin Daniel Cretton film
1: Cretton, you might like it more than I do. Again, I, I think, but he, uh, that's a, the thing you talked about. Like
0: the fight sequences is is he like what in short term twelve or just mercy? Sure, uh, you know, because there was neither uh, of which I've seen. By the way, um, who was the director? Luke, the uh, Argentinian director Lucretia Martel like mm-hmm. talked about how Marvel approached her about making one of their movies and basically said like. Marvel told her like don't worry about the action we'll do that for you and that's like that bothers me
1: that that absolutely that comes through more even more in Black Widow where like you it it looks like there's two different movies happening here they they integrated a little bit better but I have no I have no doubt that like the the stunt coordinator and the choreographer like played just as big a role if not bigger than the actual director
0: but it's I think it's even before that there's like a pre-visualization director who's like just mapping out the action sequences before a a single like frame of digital film has been shot that's why like I haven't seen the Incredible Hulk but like Louis Leterrier makes sense for an action movie he's an action director
1: that yeah um. Anyway, and even somebody like a Kenneth Branagh for the first Thor makes a certain kind of sense. Yeah. He, yeah. He
0: did. But um, um. Yeah. Now it just seems like they're like picking up. Just, yeah. They're trying to get cred by sweeping up like uh n- name like uh lauded indie directors. Well, we talked about it in the film preview, like how uh, Basam Tariq, is that his name? Uh, is seems to be very likely
1: going to be the Blade director, and it's. And like, I'd rather get another Mogul well, movie. And Chloe Zhao, like I saw a trailer for Eternals and she's directing that and while it definitely does seem to have a more striking visual sense than other Marvel films and I think of, of, of her and, and mm-hmm. Nomadland as a particularly visually gorgeous film but at the same time yeah, it's like on one hand good for her, This might oh, this might open some doors, I also think that Oscar for Best Director probably was going to open some doors too but mm-hmm. I'm definitely getting to that point where even when it's a Marvel movie I like, I just feel like it's a shame because they're only at best a, a really distinct director is going to be able to bring maybe f- like 35 to 40% of themselves to that film.
0: Uh, all right, let's move on to, um, a movie. It's normally the kind of movie that I don't uh, talk much about on here. Cause it's, the uh, we've talked about like human interest documentaries, mm-hmm. the kind of documentary, That I've lost some patience with, not as much as the biographical documentary, which at this point I'm just like, I've I've just like, I've I've been fooled too many times, especially with like, cause you know, like Todd Haynes has a Velvet Underground documentary coming out and it's like, but like also Jim Jarmusch made a Stooges movie yeah, and Edgar Wright made a Sparks movie and they were both just like, run-of-the-mill rock docs. And so, like, I'm not getting fooled, again, with the Todd Ains movie. Anyway, but this isn't a biographical documentary. Uh, This is a human interest documentary. It's called Denial. Or I guess its full title at one point was Denial, the dad who tried to save the world. Um, And it's basically the filmmaker's father is a CEO for an energy company in, I'm already forgetting, Vermont, I think? Um, Who's trying to, like, push for, like, this change in how we think about energy in terms of like with climate change coming and moving towards renewables and stuff like that. And then about 25, 30 minutes into the movie, uh, his dad comes out as transge- transgender, transgender. <laughs> um, it's a, it's a huge twist. And also I'm, but I'm also movie savvy enough that I'm like, this happened before they started filming and he, I think he intentionally waited until half mm-hmm. an hour into the movie to make it seem like a sudden new thing. But I'm, you know, I, I, I don't like being manipulated like that, but it, it does actually serve a point because the movie then starts to track these two things at once. This, uh, uh I guess woman's, um, uh, uh, it's, it's weird. Like, cause he still calls him dad, that, but that was my question. But they stay, yeah. they, they say, and, and the film, like the, the film starts referring to her as she after, after that come up, but you still hear like family members saying he, and that actually is part of the, like the movie's overall point is it's looking at climate change and this woman's transition and saying, and, and, and saying like, it's, it's taking the way that the family is having a hard time adjusting and sort of extrapolating that to the way the world is going to have to adjust like, climate change is happening and we're going to have to change the way we do things. And it's going to take a long time because people are resistant and actually you're seeing that play out in miniature in this family Hmm. who are like, uh, supportive, but also like making it about themselves at certain points. And I like that the director is not, um, too vain to show himself be kind of, being kind of petulant in his reactions yeah. and, and child and sort of regressing to childhood in, in, in certain ways. Um, it's an, it's an interesting tack that it takes. Uh, it's, it feels very, um, like it, it feels like it's made for a, tv or made for like a streaming or i think it did play theatrically like it i don't know i can't remember where um festivals but it's on canopy for uh free if you have canopy through your library is um,
1: such a great service uh, i
0: love it yeah um so yeah that's how i saw it no it was actually kind of a weird thing because I, I had heard of, it had been like on my radar as a climate change documentary which are things that i tend to like almost case in point things that i'm like i should probably watch that but i don't want to because it's going to like scare me and upset me mm. But it was like under, but then I was on canopy, and it came up under like the LGBTQ banner, and I was like, right. "What the fuck?" Because I didn't know this about the uh, the movie. I just knew it as uh, being a climate change movie. Um, so yeah, it, pretty interesting uh, okay. stuff. And it um, sounds like a little bit more than your average human interest documentary. Yeah, yeah, it has a really interesting tack, and also yeah, the um, uh, because this person's dad is the. CEO of her, her company and actually is um, the first out transgender American CEO of any of any company. So that's interesting.
1: Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door, Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Uh, What else did you watch? So we're getting into my next two movies are are rewatches, but it has been a while. Um, So in my uh, diversity in cinema class... Uh, this last week, we talked about depictions of Irish, Italians, not Irish, Italians, Irish, Italians, right. and Jews, um, which is to say, like, groups that are now grouped together with white, right. but for a while, for a long while, were really not. Um, our old uh, classmate, Zach Beliva is making a documentary about treatment of oh, Italians. I have a... Uh, yeah. I wonder how Zach's
0: doing. I guess you could tell me off mic. Uh,
1: yeah. He's... Uh, he's here now like he, i think he lives in ventura or something like that but okay. uh yeah if i weren't so damn busy with everything i yeah. would say hey let's get some coffee um but anyway and so uh i i wasn't sure what movie i was going to show i was curious on the syllabus was the quiet man because it's just like well i've never seen it and it's an opportunity yeah. to see a movie that i haven't seen um but the more i thought of it it's like no i think i want to explore uh, explore like specifically the the sort of an aspect of the Jewish experience uh, on film. So I was going to do The Pawnbroker, which I love, um, right. starring Rod Steiger. Uh, but eventually I landed on David Mamet's Homicide, partially because I knew that one, maybe more than any other film I could pick, w- could really, frankly, frustrate the, the class. That,
0: yeah, that's a great... Uh, I like that impulse. Yeah. yeah, it's not the... Uh... It's definitely uh, going to push some buttons. Yeah. I I think it's a great movie, but also I understand uh, why someone might bristle at it as well.
1: Yeah, for a few reasons. One is it's mammoth speak, and somebody Hmm. certainly had a problem with that. Somebody said, like, why are they talking like that? They didn't say it during the movie, thankfully, but afterwards, they're like, everything seems so robotic. I'm like, yeah, I get it. I totally get what you're saying. Um, But it is such a, man, what a... and I haven't seen it in a while. This is probably my third time watching it. I adore it. I think it's such a, what a wonderful exploration of what you're born into, what you choose to be. And the fact that the two sometimes are in opposition, sometimes they're not. And whether they are or not is really just a function of your ability to balance that. Um, And so you have Joe Mantegna in, what could seem like a really straightforward role but uh this idea that he he literally has two cases one very much his priority as a cop and the other a an unexpected priority as a, a jew and he starts to and he throws himself so much into the latter, and you're surprised that he does it but you also realize that like no, he. This is this is an aspect of himself that he's been suppressing for so long that now he doesn't have to, and in fact, he can embrace it and he jumps all over it, only to find that that's even more complicated than he thought. And once he hits that complication, he pivots and goes over to the the life that he's been choosing for so long, which is as a cop. Um, and in, and at the end of the film, it's actually quite tragic because neither one really work out for him yeah. because he's torn. And it's I think it's one. It, wonderfully structured I think Roger Deacon shot it. I think it's a great Mm -hmm. looking movie as well um and uh, a solid cast of like all like every single cast member has been in another David Mamet film at least one um and it's uh man I really I uh, listeners like I feel like I don't know how much we talk about David Mamet outside of Spartan I don't know how much we talk about (laughs) David Mamet as a director but man like when he's when it's working and I think it often is um, I know. I think I like House of cool. Games more than you. Yeah, what's the last thing he directed? Because I didn't like Red Belt. I don't know. I, not, neither of us like Red Belt. I don't know the last thing he actually directed. We saw that together back, it, back when we used to go see movies together. That's right, back when we used to do anything together outside of uh, a <laughs> podcast. Um, I feel like he did some TV. I feel like he maybe made like a TV movie or something like that, but I feel like the last theatrical thing he did might have been Red Belt. Uh, he
0: made a 2013 TV movie. Oh, he directed the Phil Spector movie where, where oh, Al Pacino right. played Phil
1: Spector. That's right. I assume he wrote that as well. Well, let me click okay. On that I'm sorry. And I'm find sorry. out. Yeah. Okay. He it as well. Um, uh, that's interesting. That makes me that makes me more interested. I'd love yeah. to hear. I, I oh, like and, Al Pacino yeah. doing mammoth dialogue. The
0: Unit. That was his TV show. That's that right. He, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, but yeah, Red Belt was the last like theatrical feature film
1: he directed and that was two thousand and eight and that's unfortunate because like that's something I would love for him to put behind him um, <laughs> but uh, but obviously like state and maine Spanish prisoner like I, I feel like Oliana, I think because it's he adapted it from his own play and I think he was too close to it, and I think as a movie it doesn't work super well yeah, no, um, I but yeah, so um all that is to say though like listeners if 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 you're not that acquainted with David Mamet as a director. Homicide. I would say homicide is a great place to start, but it's almost all downhill from there. Uh, I think that is, the, I think maybe even more so than Spartan. I think that's the pinnacle.
0: I think we said that. Do you remember a million years ago, you and I were on the Criterion cast to discuss homicide? And House of Games, I believe. Oh, and House of Games. Yeah. But do you remember when we recorded? It was like eight o'clock in the morning. Yes, that's right. Which is not, like still early for me. Not as early, like now that I'm older, I get up earlier. But like this was, I was still like in my 20s. Back then, it, it, that was very early for it, me. Yeah, and I like, it, but it was because like Moisés was hosting, and he was in Austin. I guess so it was like 10 a.m. his time was yeah. the only time he could do it. So like, yeah. I remember I like picked up coffee and donuts and yes. came to your house at eight o'clock yeah. in the morning. We really and made we a hung. day of it. It worked <laughs> out great. <laughs> yeah, and then I probably went home and went back to sleep. Yes. Um, but uh, yeah, all right. So moving on, my final movie, the one I just watched last night. Uh, is the new film from director Bruce LeBruce? Uh, it's called Saint Narcisse. Okay. And it's, uh, um, I will admit, the first Bruce LeBruce film that I've seen. my I know him by reputation mm-hmm. because he kind of uh, made a big splash in 2010, I want to say, with a movie called L.A. Zombie. Okay. Which is like, from what I understand, I haven't seen it. It's an introspective like art indie zombie film that about 40 minutes of the runtime is also hardcore, explicit gay porn. Uh, <laughs> so it made quite a splash when it came out. Yeah. Um, and I think we ran a review of the DVD when it came out on DVD at, at battleship Um, did think, you watch it? No, I think Jack, remember Jack, Jack Fleischer. Oh yeah. I think he was the one who watched that. He's like, um, a,
1: he's like a chef. now. Oh yeah. Right? I follow
0: him on Instagram. He's oh, a lot of fun. That's yeah. awesome. Um, Anyway, uh, so, uh, so I knew him by, by reputation, um, uh, and I was excited to see his, his new film, St. Narcisse, which I will say, uh, I mean, maybe by middle America standards is, uh, pretty risque, but by the standards of LA zombie is tame. <laughs> like sure. there's uh, almost no explicit sex in it. There's, um, a fair amount of male nudity, but, uh, you know flaccid male nudity for what it's worth. <laughs> um, I kind of hate that word, I think just be,
1: probably because of the, the, the connotation, but it's right. just such a, ugh. Um,
0: but, uh, so it, it takes place uh, sometime in the 1970s, starting in Montreal, there's a, a young man who lives with and takes care of his sickly grandmother. She dies. He, uh, then finds in her belongings letters from his mother, whom he was told died giving birth to him. Okay. Oh, yeah. And turns out, hmm, sounds like I had a mother this whole time hmm. and she lives in this town of Saint-Narcisse, Quebec. And so he goes up there, starts asking around, "Do you know a Beatrice Beatrice Beauchamp? And the uh, the town people are like, "Oh, you mean the crazy old witch who lives in the woods?" <laughs> so then he like goes into
1: the woods and finds his so many sentences you've been saying in the last few minutes don't end the way I think they're <laughs> yeah, going to. Yeah. So uh, the movie has this.
0: I could go on just telling the story because it, it gets there. I could continue to surprise you with plot developments, <laughs> but that would it would get into spoiler territory. But uh, the movie has it has a very now like shot on digital look in terms of how, how the. Images represent it. How the colors look and and mm-hmm. the and the sharpness and, and and things like that. But the style is clearly influenced by the kind of like cinema fantastique and like mid sixties schlock, like the same kind of stuff that Biller's, The Love Witch was referencing. Mm-hmm. Um, but this isn't The Love Witch. It's a it's a different movie. Um, obviously, it's a different movie, but it's a different type of movie because The Love Witch is like very much homage and living in that space and then has like, but yeah, it's kind of the uh, the opposite. The love, the love, which like tries to emulate that era of movies in every aesthetic way. And then weirdly has like cell phones and modern day cars Mm -hmm. because it takes place in the present day. Whereas this is the obvious, the opposite. This is a movie that takes place in the early seventies, but clearly is shot with modern technology. Um, but I really, I really liked that sort of, uh, push and pull where the, the, the way that, um, uh, push and pull, I almost mean literally cause there's a lot of zooms, you know? Um, and there's, there's a lot of like quick montage and it has that sort of psychedelic feel, but it also has a very, uh, I think modern, um, uh, take on, on, uh, kink and, 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 uh, sexual, the way that sexual expression might come from different kinds of repression, you know, that, um, like the, the, the town is, there actually is a St. Narcisse Quebec, but the, the Catholic undertones of that, of, of, of that title are, are not an accident. It's also Mm of, there's a lot of, there's like, there's a monastery nearby, which in, in like, this is where I started to wonder if it was going to get into LA zombie territory because the monastery is peopled by the hottest bunch of monks you've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> They're all total beefcakes, these monks. Um, but it doesn't quite get, uh, get into that, but it does definitely get pretty, pretty kinky. Um, and I was, yeah, I was really, uh, into it, really fascinated by it. Um, the main actor whose name is something very French, um, or French Canadian, I guess Felix something or other. Uh, fuck, let me look up his name because that's gonna make me feel bad. Um, t- 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 Felix Antoine Duval um, is apparently he's acted before, but he's also a stuntman, and I think mm. that like plays into what Bruce Leboux is casting him for, which is like physicality. I yeah, think, like there's there's a lot of um, uh, there's a lot of looking at his body. Obviously the camera looking at his body. Sure. But there's also a whole lot of himself regarding his own body. Hmm. Um and, and I think having a very not just physically fit but physically agile and capable uh performer um plays into that. I was really fascinated by the movie. Saint Narcisse. Okay. And yeah, if you're someone who's worried about explicit porn showing up in the movie, you can watch Saint Narcisse. It has There's some kinky sex, but it's not literally explicit, like, hardcore porn. (laughs) Well,
1: I'll say this. If you are... If you are looking for like really explicit stuff then my next film is probably not for you okay it's Muppet Treasure Island <laughs> um I uh recently I started listening to the audiobook of Treasure Island I've read the book uh a couple of times in my life and uh, it's just a I, I've always thought it was a really solid uh book and uh I, I was just interested to uh read it again then i remembered i don't have time to read things but i do have a commute and so i uh, started listening to it and thought like this has been adapted many times uh and i'd be interested in in uh watching some of those adaptations and i was like well the one i'm probably most familiar with is muppet treasure island from 1996 and so it was on disney plus so i was like i'll throw that on um and it was something i liked at the time and from an art direction standpoint and actually from the music standpoint, I think is actually pretty solid. But what's interesting is, you know, when you think of the Muppets, obviously there's a fair amount of meta humor mm-hmm. and, and I feel like there, there's a, there's an adult quality to the Muppets. And I don't mean adult in the sense of like, like inappropriate, uh, for like, children or something like that. Yeah. exactly. <laughs> um, I think of just like, there's a sensibility as often a sense of humor that underscores all of that. And then, you know, obviously with Muppet babies and then Muppet Christmas Carol, like they started really gearing more towards, uh, kids, but I feel like Muppet Christmas Carol, especially is still pretty watchable. I feel like it balances things. You get to Muppet treasure Island and the goofy Muppet stuff. It's hard to explain. It feels perfunctory. It feels like they're doing it because it's what's expected of them. Whereas the straightforward, adaptation of treasure Island, they seem much more interested in that. Uh, and, and taking and sanding some of the, the edges off, um, cause it is a very violent story. Um, and so, yeah, in a way, like for example, uh, like they have Kermit as captain Smollett and they don't really do anything with that. They just, it's just a straightforward, like the characters written in a very straightforward way and they just have Kermit play him. They have, Miss Piggy play Benjamina Gun like the the uh the castaway um and they do a little bit more with that but for the most part it just it's hard to explain like as a muppet movie I feel like it's it's really wanting hmm. as a treasure island movie not bad um but that's the thing is because of the muppet part you can't really take the treasure island part 100 percent seriously so i feel like it i i feel like it doesn't unlike muppet uh, uh, uh christmas carol i feel like it doesn't balance the elements well and i wind i think it winds up being mostly a, a failure i think it's not a bad looking movie actually um and again uh costumes and and art direction like it all works pretty well but for the most part it's uh yeah like it's something that i liked uh when it came out because even at 14 i i liked the meta aspect of, of the muppets but you watch it you watch it now and it's like oh this this could actually it could have gone further in either direction and it doesn't and so it winds up being just like a bad mix of both